0: Perhaps you remember the song by Charles Wesley written in 1741 where the first line is gentle Jesus, meek and mild look upon a lovely child pity my simplicity suffer me to come to thee but Jesus has surely grown up and changed. This is a uh, this is why we preach propositionally through scriptures. You don't choose a text like this to preach from. It is um, Jesus' probably most scathing condemnation of the religious leaders of his day. It's his last discourse before he goes to the cross. It's an extended discourse. It has devastating language against religious hypocrisy. It shows us in very clear terms The type of religion that earns a stinging rebuke from Jesus Christ. I mean, you heard it, these seven denunciations, woe to you. Now, woe is an older English word. We don't use it anymore. Woe, Maybe maybe if we're surprised or if we're shocked, we might say woe. But the word is much heavier. It, It relates to a deep despair. A sense of utter ruin that we're about to undergo. Perhaps you, you've remembered this word from like Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is brought into heaven, standing before God. And he says these words, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. I'm ruined. Now, now Isaiah was a prophet, so... What he had best of would be his ability to speak. And yet even that in the presence of a holy and mighty God brings about utter ruin. There's condemnation, there's judgment that he sees will fall upon him. So when Jesus says, woe to you seven times, what he's going to do in these verses that Allie read is he's going to first give a verdict on hypocritical religion. This is a verdict on it. This is why it's guilty. This is why he condemns it. And then he's going to bring about a judgment. It's a judgment, though, that's mixed with mercy. See, what I want you to know is the warnings of Jesus Christ are always tinged with mercy. They're always tinged with a desire. You heard it in verse 37. If you are willing. I I do want to give us hope. Because even after this warning that was so devastating, in Acts chapter 6, we know that many priests came to believe. What role did this passage have in shaking them and their religion so that they might come to true faith in Jesus Christ? So what I want to do then is look at two things. One is going to be Jesus rendering a verdict on a hypocritical religion and then look at the judgment. And then I'm going to back end the sermon with just some application points that I want you to consider. So first he's going to render a judgment. Now there are seven denunciations. I'm going to look at them in three groups of two, and then the seventh one is kind of a summary. So the first first characteristic of a hypocritical religion is Jesus is simply condemning a religion that focuses on morality over faith and devotion. It focuses on requiring obedience to traditions and norms. All may be very good, but these are the things that receive our attention or our focus. Look with me in 13. He says, Woe to you, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you fail to enter yourselves. Now, remember the Pharisees. We're not talking simply about teachers or priests. Scribes and Pharisees, Are the audience. Scribes were the teachers. They were the kind of the legal theologians, if you will. The Pharisees, like us, kind of thing. They're religious people, very holy, pursuing holiness. Diligent about it, like many of us. They were to be preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. All throughout the old scriptures, and we've seen this, how God's always making promises. I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send a rescuer one that will deliver you from sin and shame and guilt. We saw that in Isaiah 53, that lamb that was to come and and the iniquity would be placed upon him. But these leaders, these holy people, they were resting, they were focused more on morality, on on obeying laws and obeying traditions and, and keeping track of their obedience to things. In other words, the obedience to a prescribed list, whatever your per- personal list is, that that becomes a surrogate of faith. In other words, in place of resting in the finished, in the completed, in the glorious work of Jesus Christ as making me acceptable to God, we're going to focus more on what I'm doing to maintain a proper relationship to God. In other words, that God's favor will be more earned by my obedience, rather than my obedience being a result or a response to God already acting with favor to me in Christ. So it's a focus on morality. So let me just pause here with you for a minute. What do you really believe that puts you in proper relationship with God? I mean many of us know that we're broken. Many of us know that there's just an intuitive knowledge that I'm not doing everything I should do, and, and there's a sense of guilt that all of us deal with. So how do we bring about a relief of that guilt? What do you believe about that? Because if your confidence lies in Jesus Christ, that He has come to bear sin, to bear shame, to bear the wrath of God, so that we might be justified and forgiven if you believe that, that Jesus alone is sufficient for you, even though you fail repeatedly day in and day out, you're constantly turning with delight to Christ. That's different than what these men were teaching. I mean, if you think, and you have to ask yourself now, if, what do you believe about these things? If you believe that, that your relationship with God, that God finds favor in you, that God's pleased with you, simply based upon how you're doing in terms of attending church or simply reading the Bible or trying to think good thoughts or striving very difficultly. I don't want to discourage any of those things. It's a matter of where does your trust rest? It's where does your mind go to? Now, I, I was, my mind was drawn to Luke chapter 18. If you remember the parable that Jesus gives to the Pharisees, he says, hey, there's two men that enter a temple. One is a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee goes right up front. He looks at God and he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other sinners. I do this and I do this and I do this. And, 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 yet, and then, the, then the camera, as it were, kind of pans to, the, pans to the tax collector and the tax collector won't get anywhere near the front of the temple. He's beating his breast, which is a sign of repentance. saying, God, have mercy on me. That's all he's asking for. He's not trying to catalog his sins. He's not comparing himself to other people. He's just saying, God, what I need most is mercy. I, I, got, I have nothing. I just need mercy. And Jesus says he goes home justified. But here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, right prior to the passage. He goes, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, where does your trust rest? At the end of the day, are you thankful for how you performed or are you really thankful for how Jesus performed? All that he did. You know, so many of us, I think, especially within the Bible belt here, our Christian morality becomes a replacement of true trust in Jesus Christ. Russell Moore is an ethicist, a Christian ethicist, and and he writes his word about how we can easily make this switch of of true faith in Christ versus, no, I'm, I'm living a moral life, therefore I'm a Christian. He says this, he says, Christian values were always more popular in American culture than the Christian gospel. That's why one could speak of God and country with great reception in almost any era of our nation's history, but would create cultural distance as soon as we mentioned Christ and him crucified. God was always welcome in American culture. He was, after all, the deity whose job it was to bless us. He says we ought to see the ongoing, and this is important, we ought to see the ongoing cultural shake-up in America as a liberation of sorts from captivity. We never even knew we were in this morality slash religion. He says the shaking of American culture is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity. In fact, it may be a sign that God is actually rescuing American Christianity from itself. Is, is your faith tied up in, in moral observance? I mean, is that, at the end of the day, is that what gives you a sense of peace with God? That you have this, this Christian values as a basis of belief? That, that's the first condemnation he gives. That Jesus has come to save, and in him, all of our hope rests. Otherwise, it begins to slide to what we do, or what we've done, or what we promise to do. That's the first condemnation. The second condemnation, you see in verse 23, and this is where religion that Jesus condemns is more outward, excuse me, it's more form than substance, it's more form than substance, look with me at 23, he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. In other words, they were meticulous about gathering the garden herbs and making sure that they've they have counted all the, all the fruit that's been born, the herbs that have been produced, and they give it away. But they neglect the weight of your matters. And this is why Jesus says, he says, you blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, let me explain that to you. So if a Pharisee, remember now, a Pharisee's not a teacher. He's just a religious person. If he's drinking a glass of wine at dinner, you know, wine can be sweet. Gnats are flying around the wine. They may fall into the wine. So they would drink it with their teeth very close together to strain out the gnat. Why? Well, the gnat is actually unlawful to eat. But the law said you are not to eat an insect. And so you'd be defiled if you ate something that God said was unlawful. And so they drink it with their teeth close to get the gnats out if there are any in the wine. And he says you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel, a, another unlawful to eat animal. In other words, you're focusing on the minors. You're missing the majors. You're going after the particulars. You're missing the essentials. You live on the peripheral, and you miss the monumental of justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, I I memorized my verse today, but I have not yet repented to my spouse for sinning against her. Or I've gone to church regularly but I haven't extended mercy to the person who has offended me. You know, We miss justice for the unborn, justice for the oppressed, justice for the poor. How often are our minds drawn to those that don't have? We're focused on these picky tasks. Now, let me bring balance here. Jesus says you should have done those without neglecting the bigger things. So he's not putting down, nor am I putting down, Bible reading, I want to promote that. I'm not putting down the fact that you've prayed every day. I want to promote that. I just want to promote that end, that we walk in reconciled relationships, that we do extend mercy, that we do sacrifice ourselves to serve those who don't have what we have. We don't want to miss the weightier matters of the law. But we can feel pretty good that I read my Bible today. Do you see the disparity there? It's profound. It's profound. Micah said it hundreds of years before. In Micah 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God, It's really a loss of perspective when we focus on the particulars and miss the monumental. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, he says what he's talking about here is we're following all the duties of religion and we're not loving our neighbor. We're just not loving our neighbor. We feel good that we're doing the duties of religion, and I think that's fine. Let's just not miss love for the neighbor. The third condemnation that Jesus brings here, and and I do want you to pause at each step with me. I would ask you, some of us feel guilty that we haven't read our Bible. That gets the focus of our life. Some of us feel confident that we've been reading our Bible, and that gives us a degree of confidence. (coughs) Ask yourself, what particulars do you tend to home in on with which to determine how comfortable you are with God. What, what are the bigger things? What are the relationships that are right now unreconciled? I mean, what is the level of concern that we have for those that don't have what we have? How much does it burden our souls? I don't want to leave you in condemnation here. This is where we plead for God to have mercy on us. I'm thankful we're praying before the service. I'm thankful that God has mercy on us every morning. His mercies are new. Appeal to him for mercy. If you're feeling the conviction of God's Spirit right now, ask him for mercy. Ask him for grace to walk in a manner worthy of his unfathomably great name. The third condemnation you you see here in verse uh, 25 and 27, he's condemning a religion that is really focused on the outward. What's being seen by everyone? Look with me at 25. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. He calls them whitewashed tombs in 27, outwardly beautiful, but full of dead men's bones. Let me explain this to you. So oftentimes around feast days, many people would travel into Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship, as they were called to do. And of course, in this day and this time of the Bible, we didn't have graveyards marked as we do now. And so people traveling would often inadvertently walk across the path or walk across a grave, thus defiling themselves and not being able to worship. And so, and so what was practiced was they would often whitewash these tombs so that they were more easily and readily identifiable so that people wouldn't be inadvertently defiled going to worship. But what the, the irony, of course, is here they are, these whitewashed tombs, they're still filled with the bones of dead people. And he's castigating these religious people for looking good on the outside, but not being concerned with the inward transformation of God's Spirit. In other words, it's the person who desires in greater measure to be seen as holy than to actually be holy. That more effort is put forth into how I appear to people than how I actually appear to God. I mean, let's pause here for one more minute. Consider your faith. I mean, what gets the most amount of your time and attention? Is it the way you are appearing to others? Or is it actually a concern of the posture of my heart before God Almighty, who sees my heart? I think about Jesus when he said in Matthew 5, when he said, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone anyone looks upon a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery. Are we concerned about the posture of our hearts? Are we concerned about our motivations? Why we do what we do? Why we think what we think? Not just our behaviors, but but, but the the imagination and the, the inclinations of our heart that lead to our actions. Does that concern us? I mean, do we ever examine our souls and why am I doing this and asking God for grace to change us? See, hypocritical religion is not concerned with inward transformation, but more with outward display. Let me remind you of the power of the gospel. So Jesus Christ came... To bring about a new creation. Do you realize that? He didn't come just to save us from sins. He came to change us. I mean, I mean beginning now. and not, not we all have to go through cancer and then die. That's not it. We may do that. But the reality that Jesus has come not just to deliver us from hell but he's coming to deliver to the Father fruit of his labor. And that is people that actually are being changed incrementally from glory to glory into the very image of God as we were always intended to be. So he's come to change us. We are to be his new creation. That's why he says when we see him, we'll be like him. We're going to be like, Martin Luther said, like little Christs. But that happens now. And that's why I've been speaking to the nature of discipleship, that our role with one another is to help one another become more and more like Christ through teaching and admonishing one another. And that's why Jesus has come. So to just be worried about the outward appearance to others is is to swallow a camel. It's to miss the mark. No, we're to be concerned with the posture of our souls. So th- th- these, are, these are scathing condemnations, but he wraps it all up, if you will, in verse 29. Look, the seventh woe, he says, Woe to you hypocrites! You build tombs and decorate the monuments of the righteous. You assure yourselves, oh, if you had lived in the days, you would have not shed their blood. He's referencing about all the history of Israel and the, and the, and the, and the, and the religious leaders putting to death and putting to trouble the prophets and messengers of God. He says, oh, if you would have lived in their days, you would not have shed their blood. And he says, and yet you witness against yourselves, for you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, he's saying to them, you're just like them. In fact, he promises, he prophesies, he says, He says, I send you prophets. This is Jesus now speaking in the place of the divine. He says, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify, and others flock in the synagogues and persecute from town to town. So Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and religious leaders, you're just like the rest of them. You're just like the history of Israel, rejecting those whom God has sent. But there's a unique marker here. He brings up Abel to Zechariah. Abel was the first righteous man killed in Genesis 4. And Zechariah was the last righteous prophet killed in Second Chronicles. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, Second Chronicles is the last book. So Jesus is saying the history of Israel bookends from the first one murdered, to the last one murdered. And you're with them. And do you know why he says that? Because they're going to put him to death. You remember back in Matthew 21, in Matthew 21, he told that parable about the owner of the vineyard. He rents out the vineyard to some tenants, and they're supposed to produce fruit and return profits to the owner. And so the owner sends servants. And what happens? They throw the servants out, they reject the servants, they beat the servants, they stone the servants. And so the owner of the vineyard says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my my son. They'll respect him. And so the the owner of the vineyard sends a son. And, of course, the tenants are thinking, oh, if he's the son, he must be the last son. We're going to kill him and take the vineyard. So Jesus was prophesying. He knew that they would kill him. And so he's bringing a final condemnation on them. So that's the verdict that Jesus renders. The religious are deeply in trouble Now, let me just, if you're not religious here, you're just here with a family member, with a friend, you're not really consider yourself a religious person. You may be a little spiritual, but you're not religious. I think you, you can agree with me at least that you appreciate the integrity of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is bringing fire to his own house first. That Jesus cannot be one that's accused of overlooking those who are seeking to follow him. You can't accuse Jesus of kind of playing favorites You can't accuse Jesus of not being, you know, he's a little partial to this group over here. I mean, Jesus saves his most scathing condemnation for those who claim to follow him. I think in my mind, even if I were not religious, I would say, you know what? At least he's a man of integrity. Whatever else you believe, he's a man of integrity. He's a man of honesty. If you are religious here, I, I would, do, you, do you grant Jesus the authority to speak to us this way? I mean, do you believe that he has the right to say these things against the religious? I mean, do you think when you examine your own life that you find yourself perhaps guilty of any of these things, of perhaps overemphasizing morality rather than devotion to God? I'd remind you that when Jesus was asked to sum up the law, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Do you feel perhaps a slight bit of, of conviction over the fact that maybe you do practice religion in form, not so much substance? Or perhaps you are more concerned with the outward appearance? It's more important for you to have your, your peers in here respect and like you than thinking about, well, how does God view my soul and position before him right now? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. So he gives the verdict. So let me just reveal the judgment that Jesus gives. And I think you'll agree the compassion of judgment is often, the compassion of Jesus is often overlooked. Look at the mercy of Jesus. Jesus gives us two pictures here. One is mercy and one of judgment. By the way, they go together. They do. Any person that extends mercy to wickedness and evil is not a kind person. Would you not agree with that? Would you not agree that justice has to be meted out to wickedness and evil? To just be merciful and merciful and turn a blind eye and give way and give way? Is that really being kind? Mercy and judgment go together. They're siblings. They have to walk together. Look at the mercy of Jesus. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks. I mean, Do you sense the compassion? Oh, how I would have gathered you together. That word gather, that little Greek word, means to gather a people. But he puts it in the context of a hen with chicks. If you've ever been around any farm, you know that that when the threat of trouble comes, a turkey blizzard flies overhead, the chicks hold close to the mother, the hens go, the the wings go out, or she shuttles them off to safe protection, or if there's anything that enters the yard that might be a threat, it, it, Jesus is revealing his heart to us. Oh, how I would have gathered them. You know, it's interesting. They're rejecting the very Messiah, and his response is compassion. When people reject me, I go through a myriad of responses. I can be apathetic, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> I not like them anyways. Or I can be antagonistic and, and, and want to battle them. Or I can be arrogant. And just call them idiots for not believing like I believe. I I can have all kinds of responses. His is compassion, graciousness, kindness. How I would have gathered them, but they were not willing. Uh, For us of a reformed persuasion, this is a sobering verse. It, It mixes the sovereignty of God in electing and calling the darkened and broken heart to himself, And yet, there's human responsibility, isn't there? Oh, if they were willing. Jesus seems at an impasse, kind of. I don't plan on reconciling that for you today. I I just give you the words of Charles Spurgeon. Any man may get himself into a terrible labyrinth who thinks continually on the sovereignty of God alone. And he may equally get himself into deeps that are likely to drown him if he meditates only on the free will of man. We see them both, don't we, there? So you see the mercy of Jesus, but you also see the judgment. Look with me at 38. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Now, this is a word of judgment. This 38 and 39, these are harsh words. Your house. What is, what is he talking about here? Well, your house could be the temple. It could be all of Jerusalem. Most scholars think it's both. Th- that he says, your house is going to be desolate. Now, in 40 years, history is recorded that Titus marched into Jerusalem with his legions of Roman soldiers, and besieged the city and destroyed it. That when they finally broke through the wall, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that corpses were just piled on top of each other. It was absolutely destroyed, life and property. But that wasn't the real judgment. That was a foretaste of it. The real judgment is the house is desolate. And that word desolate is the same word used when God removes his glory out of the temple in Ezekiel. In other words, the gospel has now left. Salvation, the opportunity, is now gone. The people of Israel through whom the nations were to come to know God is moving on, being replaced. That Jesus has become the true Israelite that will be the one that brings the world to God. Your house is desolate. He follows it in 39 with, you will not see me again. Can you believe the harshness of that? I mean, the despair that if they understood, you will not see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to the parousia, the return of Christ when every knee will bow and every tongue confess whether you love him or whether you loathe him, you will remark over his glory and you will obey and you will bow. All of us will, sinner, saint alike. It'll be a, it's going to be a, a great and awesome day. And I mean that in the, in the full sense of that. So Jesus, you see the mercy and the judgment. It's a picture of him as judge. He is the judge of all things. He will be the judge of all things. So this is a, this is a very sobering passage. He gives a verdict on religion, and then he renders a judgment as the judge. So what do we do with this? What do we hear, whether you're spiritual or not, how do we respond to this? Well, well number one, let me, just get, let me click off a few applications for you to think about. Number one is I think there's a place for self-scrutiny among the life of the Christian. There is a place for self-scrutiny. Let me, let me warn you, with these Pharisees, it's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and see them, oh, they're the guys with the black hats. They're the wicked ones. They're the monsters. We look at them with such disdain. We look at them as, boy, if I would have been there, I would have given them a piece of my mind. Do you know that the Pharisees in this day were loved, revered, honored, respected? They were held in high regard. They were holy people. They strove diligently to be holy and to be blameless and to be an example to people. They were highly respected. What happened? Well, I don't think their hypocrisy was in any measure kind of a a deceitful, deliberate scam over the people. I think they were self-deceived. I don't think they realized it. I mean, we see that in Matthew 7, don't we? When, when the people are going to come to Jesus and say, hey, hey, didn't I do miracles in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I feed? And he says, I never knew you. They were deceived. Self-deception. Do you realize our openness to being deceived over where we are in the faith? And why does Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 say, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith to see if Christ really lives in you. Unless, of course, you fail the test. There are people that are deceived. Ask yourselves, I mean, do you hold to an outward form? Do you worry more about what people think? Is morality more of your your calculus for how you are with God? I mean, ask yourselves these questions to discern. Ask someone that you love, that you care for. Ask them, what am I being blind to? On a later note, I thought I would try this sermon out on my dear friend, Mr. Nick. We drove together to the elders' elders retreat. Elders' retreat, by the way, was very good, very helpful, sweet time with the men. And we'll be giving you some clear updates, tying them into what we said at the turn of the year. Uh, Those will be coming in February to you. Ray's going to be kind of articulating all the things that we discussed and prayed for. But, but on the way home, I was thinking about this, and so I asked Nick, I said, Nick, I'm, I'm blind to my sins. I, I'm sure of it. Would you help and love me? And, and what, what do you see in me that I'm blind to? Well, at that point, I see him reach down into his book bag and pull out a binder. <laughs> and it must have had eight tabs to it. I'm thinking, hold the phone. I'm, I'm, I'm gentle right now. Be careful with me. He goes, where do you want to start? I said, "Well, like in the alphabet? You know, do we go with D or E? But gracious as he is, he did share with me, and it was helpful to me. Not from the whole binder, from just the beginning part of it, but it was helpful to me because, because it made me aware of what I need to confess before God and and change my behavior to walk in a manner worthy of God. I found it helpful, Nick, and I thank you for that. And he did it with gentleness and kindness. and He was actually shaking and nervous. I think he was afraid I'd make him walk from, let, let's say, Rocky Mount back to, the, back to his house. No, he did it in a gracious way and a kind way. Would you be willing to do that with somebody else? I mean, would you be willing to just say, what hypocrisy do you see in me? What, what blind spots do I have? And then not defend yourself immediately just just listen i know you got reasons why you did what you did but you just listen and you stop that's important to removing self deception uh, secondly there is a place for the christian church to bring about a hard word for gospels that are not really gospels you know you look at the language of jesus hypocrites brood of vipers serpents lawlessness blind guides blind men full of dead men's bones. And Jesus isn't name-calling, na nana, nana. He's not name-calling, he's not venting, he's not frustrated. He sees that the stakes are great. There is a compromising of his gospel. And so he brings to bear a full-throated response. It's not judgmentalism. It's a critical analysis of a false gospel. That's what it is. And he does it with severity to the church first, to the people of God. You see the same thing in Second Peter and you see the same thing when Paul says to the Galatians, when they're following a false gospel, he says to those teachers, I want them to emasculate themselves. Those are fighting words. I mean, emasculate. Mm. That's, that's hard language. I mean, there's a social gospel out there that promotes Jesus and do all these things for him. There's a soft gospel. Jesus loves you and sin and judgment and hell are never mentioned. You know, there's a prosperity gospel out there. Oh, Jesus is there to help you live abundantly today. Suffering has no place in the Christian life. These need the stinging rebuke done with grace, but with sharpness and truth, not judgmental. The stakes are high. He says, you proselyte, the proselytes they make, because of their zealousness, they're twice the son of hell that you are. Well, that's that's sobering. Thirdly, there's not just a place for this difficult language, uh, but there's a place that you pray for your leadership. You know, I tremble over a passage to preach like this. I know the elders do. There's a great sense of responsibility that, that there is a right relationship that we're humbly trying to declare the word in a way that leads you to Christ, doesn't obfuscate the way to Christ. I would ask you to pray for us on this. There's also a place to share the gospel with all people. You see that, that if only you were willing. We're not meant to preach to the elect of God. We're meant to preach to the world. We're meant to bring forth the word to all people. I have another one. I can't think of it. Oh. There is a place to preach about the judgment and hell. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, Jesus says, you will be sentenced to hell. That that to me is severe. I mean, think about that for a minute. His listening audience is in hell. He says, do you think you'll escape being sentenced to hell? So they're in hell. There is a a seriousness to that that we cannot miss. Uh, That we have to speak about these things with graciousness and sorrow. Think about Jonathan Edwards. You know, Many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards, pastor in New England in the 18th century, and he's really known for one sermon, Sinners That Fall in the Hands of an Angry God. He, he was a brilliant theologian, and he would speak oftentimes on judgment and hell. He didn't think that preaching fire and brimstone would cause love for Christ. So he didn't think I can scare him out of hell, if you will, into heaven, like some may think. He just wanted to bring spiritual realities to the fore. Help people. There is a place to speak about the nature of hell and judgment with people. It is uncomfortable and it ought to be. It ought to be done with fear and trembling. That's the way it should be done. But it can't be omitted. It can't be forgotten. It can't be kind of left to the side. There was a survey done in North America a few years back about uh, who believes in the existence of hell, and you'd be surprised, I know there's like over 78% of people believe in the existence of hell, but in those asked, not one thought they were going there. So, so it, it's, it's funny to think about the existence, but, but nobody, will, but I'm not going to be there, I'm not going to be there, I'm not going to be there. You know, it's like all of a sudden, why do we need a hell? Because nobody's going there. And, and, and the, re- the reality of it is, that's the way we look at it. Why? Because we're self-deceived. So so let's take a minute now. So we saw Jesus give a verdict on hypocritical religion. And he's speaking, can I remind you before we turn to prayer, he's not speaking to the atheist. He's not speaking to Stephen Hawking. He's not speaking to the militant atheist. He's not speaking to the gentle agnostic. He's not speaking to the spiritual wandering. He's not speaking to the ones that just don't know the, what ends up. He's speaking to the religious people. He's speaking to the people who are in the temple worshiping. That's the most sobering thing. So let's take a minute now and ask God for his spirit to bring clarity to our own souls, to have the courage that we might invite others, to to weigh into our lives. Let's not be found. Let's not be found to be self-deceived. And then an elder is going to close this in just a moment. Thank you.